content warning, this week's episode contains topics that may cause distress, especially around complicated pregnancies. Listen at your own discretion and please remember to discuss any questions with your doctors and to do your own research. This week, join us as we discuss handling complicated pregnancy and birth. So pour a glass of wine, lock the bedroom door, and take a deep breath. Welcome to the 80s Mom Podcast. I'm Cecily. And we're two stay-at-home moms, and this week we're going to be talking about Cecily's lovely pregnancies. <laughs> yeah, don't don't say hospital birth, because it, it's not exactly the norm for anything. <laughs> then we have two ends of the spectrum, and... Well, yes. I'm looking around to see if we can find somebody who's had a normal birth. I just don't know anybody. <laughs> Everybody I know has had C-sections. Um, my doula friend has agreed to come on, but she just got out of the hospital yesterday, so that might be in a couple of weeks. That would be cool. So, Cecily, do tell us about your lovely pregnancies with Patrick and B. Okay, Patrick started out absolutely unremarkable just everything normal i was fresh out of grad school so it was the perfect time i was a great weight i was in great health i was 25 my family has a history of great pregnancies everything was totally normal october and november i wasn't gaining enough which is kind of funny given that I really like food. I think that's kind of silly because during my pregnancy I gained no weight at all. I did not gain a single ounce until I was eight months pregnant. That's amazing. I would, well, the thing was I was losing weight while I was growing a baby and because I was losing weight but I was gaining baby it was just leveling out to I weighed the same. Yeah. So I the baby was just getting all the weight. Yeah. But it, I weighed 175.4 the entire pregnancy until the 8th month and when I had her I weighed 195. And then suddenly I was down to 165. I kid you not. <laughs> when she was a month old I, I got weight. Having the baby causes a sudden <laughs> drop that has nothing to do with how much the baby weighed. <laughs> Isn't that isn't that like the weirdest thing ever? Now it some is. some of that yes. was I'd been breastfeeding for a month, but yeah. it was a bit before I um got weighed. It wasn't like the highest priority on my list, but yeah, I was like 165, and now I'm like 216. Yay! I've lost weight, but yay! I need to lose more weight. Anyway, you yeah. are gaining. I started it like. 125 and was 128 or 9 in October. My doctor was not thrilled. But other than that, you know, everything was fine. She was starting to talk about, let's maybe have you see a dietitian about, I don't know, 
late November. I, I don't even remember how often my visits were. They were whatever, whatever the norm was. Everything fine, just me not gaining enough, baby starting to measure a little small. So mid-December, I'm just going to say my urine got funky. Feels kind of TMI, but there you have it. We're talking urine about got funky. pregnancy and childbirth. It's gross. It's just the way it is. Yeah. So they decided I needed to do a 24-hour urine culture, which means all of your urine is going to go into a gallon jug in the fridge for 24 hours. So it was already planned. I was staying home from work Monday the 18th because there was no way I was taking that into work. That was not going to happen. <laughs> well, you worked in the food industry too, or would you have kept it? Well, I I worked in a restaurant, and but the, the main job was in the school district. Oh. And there wasn't really a staff bathroom. So, yeah, I was not going to truck a uh, jug of urine back and forth from the restroom to the teacher's lounge. That's not happening. Mm. Also, not putting that in the teacher's lounge fridge. That's just weird. <laughs> yeah. So I was already staying home to 18. I also had god-awful stomach flu. Throwing up and throwing up and throwing up. Just nothing weird. Just, eh, it's stomach flu. I called the doctor's office just to let them know. I called in from work. 18th, 19th, and 20th, I was home sick as a dog and my OB's nurse kept calling like like once a day or maybe a couple times a day just to see how I was and by the way are you having any headache no are you having any changes in vision no okay well just you know you don't send the pregnant lady out in the ice storm to go to the doctor's office if you can help it. But she kept asking about these goofy symptoms that, no, I didn't have. It's just stomach flu. So the 21st was the Thursday, and that was when all the parents paid their fees for the school program I worked for. So since I was the assistant lead who took all the fees, I figured I really needed to get in Thursday, record all the checks, do the deposit, all of that stuff. <laughs> I got myself sent back home after the meeting because I looked dead oh, and goodness. I was obviously not supposed to be there. And I figured, well, you know, school's out for Christmas now. We're going to have full days of scope. I really need a doctor's note if I'm going to miss any more work. So I went to Springfield Clinic just for a doctor's note. I'm just dragging my incredibly sick self out to have someone look at me and go, yup, you're sick. Don't go to work and send me home. And 
the doctor actually gooned me a little bit about wearing elastic waisted pants because I did not look pregnant. He's like, you cannot be wearing maternity pants already. You do not need those. And I said, well, yeah, my, my OB would prefer that I need those. But yes, yes, I get the humor. Yeah. And he said everything seemed fine, but pregnant women can have gallbladder problems. I guess that's like something you're susceptible to when you're pregnant. So we were going to have a blood test just to rule that out. And then I could go home. So I got my blood test after lots and lots of trying because my veins were like flat. And the, the tech commented and I said, well, you know, I've had really bad stomach flu for like four days now. And he said, oh, yeah, that'll do it. So we got the blood drawn and I went out to the waiting room and I waited and I waited and I'm just curled up in the biggest waiting room chair I can find just wanting to go home and die. Just give me my doctor's note so I can go home and die for a while. <laughs> Finally, this was like an hour plus waiting on this test. And they finally called me back in. And the nurse rechecked my blood pressure. I thought that was weird. And she looked at the machine like that was weird and left. And I could hear talking out in the hallway about, like, who was on call that night and stuff. And someone poked their head in and said, hey, if you needed a hospital, which one would you want? Oh, <laughs> that's said, scary. Well, I, I guess St. John's, I'm thinking, oh, yeah, it's my gallbladder. Great. Now I'm going to have surgery. This is going to be so much fun. And the doctor came back in and started in with this laundry list of everything that was wrong in my blood. And the only detail I remember was that platelets were like under 30, whatever that meant. And... I was waiting for, and you know what? You've got cancer in your left big toe. Ha ha ha. No, seriously, it's your gallbladder. You're going to go have that out. And the punchline <laughs> never came. Oh, he said, no. so you're going to go to St. John's and you're getting admitted. And if you drove yourself, we, we won't send you by ambulance and add another complication, but you're going to go straight there. You're not getting clothes. You're not getting anyone else. You can call someone from there, but you're going straight there and you're getting admitted. And I'm like, okay. So I drove to St. John's in the dark and on the ice and on my cell phone the entire way. Because, of course, I was letting everyone know what's going on. And attempting to get a hold of my husband, who worked for the same school program. And wasn't going to be off until after six to let him know where the car was going to be. And that I wasn't picking him up. Oh, goodness. And how far and along were you? I was just 28. I was like 27 and six days or something. Oh, my goodness. That's scary. So, yeah, that was fun. I wasn't taking it all that seriously. Because, you know, okay, they'll fix whatever it is, and everything will be fine. 
you know, that's that's what they do. That's why they go to school forever. So I got there and I got admitted. And I think Brian got there about the time that they were getting me into a room. And that was when I learned that if they don't have time to do the nice talkative bedside manner thing, you have a problem. That's that's something really bad because it felt like a trauma ward. Everyone was going in and out and in and out and more blood was being drawn and they were figuring out where they were going to draw more blood from because everything was flat. And trying to find an, a vein that would support an IV and putting in magnesium which A, burns in your veins and B, will make you throw up a lot. So I did all of that. And at some point, some nurse pulled Brian aside and said that, you know, she, she couldn't really comment, but she should know that I was a very sick little lady. Very sick. And so eventually, everything calmed down. And I had the fetal monitor on. I had an automatic blood pressure cuff on one arm. I had the IV on the other arm. Um, there was lots of stuff on me. Oh, yeah, and, and a catheter, because I was not getting out of this bed. Oh, goodness. <laughs> and then I found out overnight that Patrick didn't care for being monitored. <laughs> Patrick didn't much like that thing on mommy's tummy so Patrick would kick it out of place and then swim off and hide <laughs> and then then the nurse would have to come back in and find him again oh we have a story <laughs> like that there was there was a point when I was laying on my midwife's um, couch at their office and they had the Doppler and they were trying to find Xandria to make sure she was you know still there. Now, I'd just seen my OB, yeah. so we were sure she was still... I'd seen my OB like a few weeks before, so I'm fairly sure she's still there. But they yeah. can't find her. And they can't find her. And, and she's then, playing and, peekaboo. And then she finally came up, kicked the Doppler, and swam away. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, fine, yes, I'm here, now go away. Yeah, so... yeah. Barb was chasing her up and down and all around trying to <laughs> get a heart rate count on her. Because yes. she's still too small for the fetal scope, which is the thing that looks like a stethoscope. <laughs> and they have to be so yeah. big before that thing will work. And babies don't like the Dopplers or the fetoscope. Or they don't like the Dopplers because, for the same reason, they don't like ultrasounds. They can actually feel those sonic waves and they don't like it. <laughs> so, so that's why yeah. they go hide from them. Yep, and that's probably why Patrick was hiding, because that's the now. same thing. Yeah. So, I basically, I I guess I slept at some point, but, like, every half hour, I think, the blood pressure cuff would do its thing. And if the blood pressure cuff wasn't doing its thing, they were having to chase down Patrick again. <laughs> so, about 7.30 the next morning... 
my OB was standing at the side of my bed in a tracksuit, looking like she really had not had any coffee yet this morning, trying to figure out what they missed. And it turns out that what I had, which is called health syndrome, is supposed to come with absolutely skyrocketed blood pressure. Blood pressure high enough to give you headaches and vision changes and all this freaky stuff. And my blood pressure was perfectly fine. It was like a little up, but you know, I'm pregnant. I've been barfing for four days. My blood pressure is going to be up. But yeah, that was, that was how they had completely missed it. And that's why the nurse kept calling. Because, you know, stomach pain and throwing up can also mean health syndrome. And so she kept asking about the most recognizable, typical symptoms, which I didn't have. Friday morning, I started labor. They stopped me by rolling me onto my left side. So then I stayed there for like the next, I guess, three days. <laughs> <laughs> so Saturday, I had... Several OBs, including mine, I guess all the, the ones in her practice, asking me just how determined I was to stay pregnant. And I thought that was the silliest question ever, because I'm at, like, 28 weeks. I'd kind of like to stay pregnant longer. Yeah, longer would be good. Longer would be really good. So they looked skeptical, and they left. And the neonatologist, Dr. Beniers, who was awesome and was the most adorable little French grand pair you ever saw, Aww. took his ultrasound machine on a walk to come visit me. <laughs> Sounds like a dog. He <laughs> took his dog he, he for just, a walk. Like, appeared around the corner to come and see how I was doing with his ultrasound machine in tow, which, which I hadn't realized you can do. But you can do, especially if you're him. Because <laughs> according to the nurses, yeah, he does that. Because they asked why the ultrasound machine was in the hall outside my room. Because <laughs> 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 I, guess, I guess he left it there. <laughs> so he said things uh, were not ideal. But Patrick was doing okay. So okay. We can keep being pregnant. The next day, he came and took his ultrasound machine on a walk to come see me again. And that was Sunday. Sunday before Christmas. Just mm -hmm. to clarify, it would have been the 24th. I had to look at a calendar to figure all this out. Because I knew it in days of the week and I knew that Christmas was Monday. But I wanted to see a calendar. So... The 24th, he said, yeah, he could see that Patrick was fighting. He wasn't struggling, but he was fighting. It wasn't good. Um, also, by the way, if your veins are completely flat, a really good blood drawer person. It's a phlebotomist, and once you find a good one, 
It's kind of like finding a good hairdresser. You get their phone number and you never go to anybody else. Yes, I keep that person. I have the cell phone number of my phlebotomist and I drive 30 minutes out of my way. And if I'm at my doctor's office, it's an hour out of my way from my doctor's office to go get my blood drawn. Wow. Yeah. And of course, my doctor's like, well, you know, we can draw it here. And I'm like, no. My rheumatologist like is always like, oh, I'll be this sitting. This is my person. Yeah. I'll be sitting in the infusion lab and they'll be like, well, if you want to go get your blood drawn while we uh, get your shots together. And I'm like, no, you can just print me those orders and I'll go see my guy. <laughs> I yes. don't get my blood drawn by anybody else under any. If I had to go to the hospital, I would go to BJC in St. Peter's. Just to be sure that Ryan could draw my blood. <laughs> yeah. Because he is amazing. He does not look like he would be amazing, but he is amazing. He's the one who could draw on Xandria when she was an infant and not leave bruises. Oh, that's wonderful. That is a talent. Yes. Because that is not easy. Because children fight. Yes. Yes, they do not understand holding still and it being over. You're poking them with a needle. <laughs> They're not going to understand that. No, and it's kind of par for the course now. If I have to take Xandria in, they have to bring somebody else because I'm no longer strong enough to hold her. I can mm, have her in my lap, fun. but I can't hold her arm. I'm not strong enough. Last time she pulled a needle out of her arm. Oh. It was fine. It was fine. It was not a big deal, but... It's, That's good. It leaves a person. It's not fun. So, yeah, we have somebody hold her now because yeah. I'll have her in my lap, but they have to hold her arm. I'm just, I don't have the strength anymore because of the arthritis. Anyway, you were saying your night phlebotomist. The night phlebotomist, the night girl, was awesome. She would run all my tests on pediatric amounts that she could get from my fingers. One of those afternoons, some other person was trying to get blood for something or other, and they were talking about they might have to put, like, a port in a wrist or something. And I mentioned that to Rebecca, the night girl, who said, no, we're not doing that. We're just going to keep doing it on little PD amounts from your fingers. And I said, okay. And she said the go, getting into the vein on your wrist, apparently that really, really hurts. So I, I really didn't want them to do that. Definitely tell you that because Ryan's drawn blood from there and that's nowhere near as big as an IV, but that had to be the worst, one of the worst sticks I've had in my life. Ooh. Sometimes yeah. my, sometimes my veins are just bad. So he did it. That's the only time he ever bruised me too. And um, when I had oral surgery, they tried to draw... He stuck me three times, and he's lucky that I was doped up on nitrous and Ativan, because usually you stick me once and I'm (laughs) done. You get once, and then I punch you. Um, (laughs) You have had your chance. Now back away. (laughs) I get kind of violent. Uh, So he stuck me in both of my elbows, even though I told him he was going to need to do it Place the IV in the back of my hand, and he was going to need to use a warm compress to do it. 
So he didn't do it. And then he failed. And he didn't do it. And then he failed. And then he did it where I told him, how I told him, and it was fine. (laughs) I would think after 35 years of living in this body, I kind of know where it works. Yeah. But of course, you know, doctors think they know best. I'm like, you can't pull from the butt. If my phlebotomist can't draw blood out of that vein, you're not going to be able to place an IV. You can't place an IV where we can't even get blood right now. Yeah. I've had nurses run out into the hall and say, you've got to come see this girl. She doesn't have veins. (laughs) I'm like, well, I I did warn you. (laughs) I'm just like, it's hard. I'm, I'm a hard stick. Because I had anorexia, I had a shitload of blood work done. And because of that, they kind of ruined the veins in my arms. And because of that, Ooh. it's really hard to draw blood out of me. So, uh, yeah, when I say rolly this and twisty and full of valve, the and the, tiny, the only person outside of Ryan I trust to um, stick me is my mother-in-law, who places pick lines, which are um, tubes that go straight into your heart for dispensing medication under certain circumstances, like if you're on chemo. Um, yep. She does that. And she is really, really good. I mean, she doesn't do it clinically anymore. She runs a business where she does the administrative stuff now, but she's really good. And the second time he failed, my doped up mind had the thought, I wish my mother-in-law was here. Because could we just get this <laughs> done already? So, yeah, it's... It's fun when you're a hard draw, and I don't know how to tell you how yes. to find a good phlebotomist. Because everybody's like, oh, drawing blood is fine. It's not painful or anything. And I'm like, these people lost their mind. I no, barely feel not. it when Ryan does it. And I don't know how that works. I don't know I what voodoo he I always tell people to go has. for the backs of my hands first. And they don't believe that the backs of my hands are somehow less sensitive than the inside of my elbows. Oh, yes, they are. In addition the veins actually being visible so you can actually find them. Oh, yes, they are. That's my preferred spot. Now, Ryan doesn't draw from there. I don't think he's ever drawn me from there. But anybody else doing it, I'm like, uh-uh. Backs in my hands, please. Thank you. Yes. Ryan can get it out of my elbow, and I don't know how he does it painlessly, but he can do it. And there's no oh, good I way to find a good one. Oh, the other interesting thing is if you're ever stuck with magnesium, they'll also put in an IV of just straight saline because of the magnesium burning. Yeah. And whenever the bags ran out, whenever one of the bags would run out, the IV machine would start beeping. And I'd just press the call button and say, hey, the bag is out, and they would come change it. Well, Sunday night, Sunday evening, actually, because it was the transition from day shift to night shift, the thing started beeping. So I said, hey, the bag's out. You might want to fix it. And they said, yeah, they would be in as soon as they could. And I was waiting and waiting, and I realized my hand is feeling hot. 
and then my wrist was feeling hot. And then finally, I look over at the bags, and this was the first time that the saline had run out, but not the magnesium. Oh, no. So I had the magnesium going straight into my arm. And and I pushed the call button a couple more times, but, you know, it, it sounded like they might be busy. And the last time I finally said, um... The one that's out is the saline, so I'm getting straight magnesium, and it's really uncomfy. And then two nurses came running in to change it. <laughs> and they said, right at shift train, they'd had, like, three emergency admissions while they were handing over patients. Which was why, you know, I, I wasn't complaining. I was just notifying them, and they were going to get to that. Just as soon as they were done hooking up three other women to everything under the sun. So that was fun. But yeah, Sunday night, my liver started complaining. And my liver had not been complaining since I was admitted. Because, I don't know, I guess the magnesium and saline did something about that. But... Your liver complaining hurts a lot. It feels like a really tight band around your bottom ribs. And mm. it it just really hurts a lot. And I mentioned it. And they said, oh, we should get some more blood drawn and see if we can give you something for that. And they got the blood draw done with wonderful Rebecca. But they weren't getting the results back. And they weren't getting the results back. They weren't getting the results back. And it was like 10.30 to 1 in the morning that my liver was really, really, really complaining. And they were trying to get a hold of someone who would tell them that they could give me something. And they couldn't. And they couldn't because they needed these results. About 1 o'clock in the morning, they gave me Demerol. And apparently, that both makes it not hurt and also makes you really not care about it. <laughs> That's the best pain That's medication. Really and about 10 o'clock the next morning, I don't know, at some point after the sun was up the next morning, a nurse was asking me for Brian's cell phone number. And I couldn't begin to straighten out what it was, but but I could dial it if you gave me a keypad. So she <laughs> held the phone in front of me so I could dial it. So she could tell me, so, I mean, so she could tell Brian that he really needed to come now. This baby was being born. Now. And they knocked me out completely because... My platelets were too low to risk nicking anything with the epidural needle. So it was actually better to just cut everything open where they could see where all the bleeds were. Because otherwise I could just, like, bleed out into my back or something. And Patrick was a pound 15. Ah, uh, micro preemies. Yup. Actually, he was a pound 14 point something. We joked that they gave him a, a 
a few tenths of an ounce as this Christmas present. <laughs> because it's officially recorded as 115, but there's a picture somewhere around here of him on the scale, and it's like 114.7. And he basically looked like a baby skeleton. Yep, they do. Yep, they look really freaky at that age. Yeah. They do not look like babies at that age, which is not to say that they're not cute in their own way. Yeah, I mean, they, they look like, like, like babies, but someone didn't put everything on them. They look like aliens, to be honest. Yes. Yes, they look like little alien skeletons. Their, their skulls aren't totally intact, and their ribs cave in when they breathe. Because their bones also aren't bones yet. Yeah. They're basically cartilage. Well, that's true more or less until they reach two anyway. Well, it's yeah, but really... they're like, like really cartilage. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I know. That's why so if somebody says... And down and down. If somebody goes, my one-year-old broke a bone, that's really bad. Ooh, yeah. Something something yeah, horrendous has happened. For I had a friend had their two year old um got their femur broke. Yeah, that was rough. Fun. And that was also very bad. He's fine, but it was very bad. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> so that's Patrick. And, um, I don't think they told the lactation consultant actually how sick I was because she was very cheerfully at my bedside Monday morning. I wasn't awake until, like, 4.30, 5 o'clock Christmas. Everyone says, oh, a Christmas baby, it's the Christmas you'll never forget. I'm like, no, it's the Christmas I will never remember because I was heavily drugged for most of it. <laughs> and yeah. then and then I was not awake from surgery for another big chunk of it and then I went back to sleep <laughs> <laughs> and that was my Christmas so the next morning the lactation consultant consultant brought me this wonderful Cadillac of breast pumps that's like a hospital standard woo thing very mm -hmm. woo and told me that I I would want to pump like every three hours round the clock and I had Brian bring me in an alarm clock that I set every three hours every three hours I woke up and pumped for the first 24 hours the next 24 hours I slept <laughs> just like like, straight through. I would open my eyes, look at the alarm clock, and I wasn't moving. That was that was not happening. There was no movement happening, and I would go back to sleep. So, I don't know. I guess that was Wednesday. Also, at some point, the same nurse that was there, the night I was admitted that was telling Brian that 
I was very, very, very sick, came in and said, oh, something like, I, I didn't expect you'd still be here. And I, at the time, took it as she expected that I would have been home. Or, you know, I wherever they move moms to who've already had their babies and are getting ready to go home. Mm-hmm. Or something. I don't know. And the morning that I left the hospital, Brian came in and was getting me. And the nurse came in and said something very jovially. She was a very jovial nurse. She had talked me into trying food prunes and thought I was just going to love those. They are so good for you. And she was very cheerful. And she said, so how does it feel to almost die? And I oh, laughed. God. And Brian was like, uh, no, no, she's, she's not joking. I have some stuff for you to read when we got home, but she's really not joking. And yeah, it, it turned out that the, the numbers that I did remember at the time for like platelet clouts and stuff was like as bad as it gets. So what the nurse actually meant that she probably didn't mean to say was, oh, holy crap, I thought you'd be in ITU or something. Not, oh, I thought you'd be perfectly fine and home. Yeah, no. That is so that was scary. Not, that was not entirely fun. <laughs> yeah, that is terrifying. It didn't really sink in until approaching his first Christmas when about the second half of December I started smelling like disinfectant or latex gloves just kind of hospital smells just randomly around the house and then the 21st I realized it was that day and then I cried like the whole day I have oh. no idea why but I kind of flipped out and Brian called off work and it was this whole thing. Well, that was a lot of trauma to go through. And at some point your body realized that you had to process it. But it's not like it puts it on the schedule yeah. for you. Yeah. I've I've had that happen in opportune moments. The um, first Christmas I had with Jason's family, it wasn't Christmas, it was before that. They were decorating for, they were decorating for Christmas, so it was around Thanksgiving, and I went into the darkened parlor, and I just broke down crying, because no matter how many times I had cried before, or indeed have cried after, for some reason it hit me hardest than that my grandpa was dead. Mm. Because I had never decorated for Christmas. His family really, really big on it, and the only other people I've ever known who are big on it were my grandma and grandpa, and it just, oh, it just hit me so bad, and this is, you know, back when my anxiety was also immense, so I'm around people I don't know, I'm, and my body decides, oh, we should work through some trauma right now. Yeah, this is a great time for this. Yeah. So your body went... These things happened, and I haven't acknowledged them yet, and I'm going to do it right now. Yes. Explosively. 
all explosively. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's okay. We all have those moments. How was um B's pregnancy different than Patrick's? Aside from the fact that you know she you knew she was gonna come home. Oh, you mean from NICU? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that was a huge difference. Because we joked that Patrick would go to kindergarten from NICU. <laughs> he was just never coming home. I the the pretty much every week in March. I would be emailing the Patrick update email list, which was massive. That, you know, oh, he should be home this week. They're saying he should be home this week. And then he'd have another apnea or another bradycardia or something. And okay, well, it'll be a few more days. And when I finally said he's coming home this Friday for real, he is coming home. The universal response was, I'll believe it when I see it. Because <laughs> yeah. he had, he had, um, he needed steroids at one point for his lungs, which steroids make babies really mad. We went from <laughs> We went from having the happiest baby in NICU to the angriest. We could hear him when we got off the elevator. Oh, goodness. We just hadn't realized it was him yet. <laughs> and we soaped up and called in. And, and the screaming just got louder and louder. And the screaming was our baby. And he stopped for a moment and stared at us, astonished, like, huh? They appeared. <laughs> and then he remembered that he was absolutely pissed and started screaming <laughs> again. And we we didn't visit for all that long that day. We we really felt sorry for the nurses when we left because they were stuck. Oh no. Because he was just going to scream and scream and scream. And scream. More screaming. Lots of screaming. <laughs> oh goodness but he didn't come home on any monitors he did come home with all the therapists and goofy feeding stuff and all sorts of goofy weirdness but yeah he was in, he was in a few weeks after his due date So how but yeah, Beatrix was everything was good. My hands suddenly decided to swell a whole bunch for absolutely no apparent reason at nineteen weeks. Which yes, is is awfully early for anything to be swelling. A friend of mine actually rearranged her entire moving weekend. So that she could sit with me in the hospital with Patrick because Brian was at work and Patrick was four and not going to be entertained for terribly long in labor and delivery triage while they made sure that everything was cool. Oh. So that was fun. And then everything was fine. And then I think it must have been 22 weeks because I think. 
I want to say 21, but I'm also pretty sure that their standard visits are on even weeks. Am I wrong? I can't I don't remember. remember. Let's say 22 weeks. And we had the sauna and everything was fine. Of course, the tech can't tell you if anything's not fine. But everything seemed fine. And then she left and came back with a doctor that we came to refer to as Dr. Eeyore. Because the poor woman was very much a pessimist. Very, very much a pessimist. And her take on the ultrasound, which I guess showed abnormalities in blood flow. It wasn't that anything was heavily wrong. It was that things were going to be wrong. And she was 22 weeks, and Dr. Eeyore said that she was measuring two weeks small, and that with my history with Patrick, and looking at the blood flow patterns in the placenta and in the umbilical cord, yeah, this could be any time now. And there's there's not really anything anyone can do. So, <laughs> there you go. If blood, if bed rest would help. And she said, you can try that. So, we went home and did that. And Patrick had the absolute time of his life for the next four months because he was largely unmonitored during the day and had unfettered access to every book in the house. <laughs> and to I be fair, out how to read the encyclopedia. B is like two years undersized right now. She yeah. may she may well, be eight, but her and Zandria wear the same clothes, and Zandria is <laughs> four. Yes. Yes, basically. B is just like six inches taller. Although, to be fair, also, Zandria is moderately tall. Yeah, I don't think B's six inches taller. Maybe three. Really? She's not that much taller. I don't think. She's like a head taller, I thought, which would be like six inches for them. I don't know. Well, you, will, you know, we'll have to measure them next time they're together. Well, that will be next week. Uh, yes, we'll have to check that out. We will have to check that out. But yeah, so, they were like yeah, the same clothes. I was on bed rest, and I went to seeing the doctor every other week. And the other neonatologist, Christine Johns, had two. The other one we refer to as Dr. Tigger. <laughs> Because he was happy and optimistic, and we were just, we were going to do this. And also, Dr. Veneers, who would take his son on the walk to go see people, and just, you know, go check on random patients he was concerned about, had taught Dr. Abrams. <laughs> which was also a really awesome thing to find out. Because Dr. Veneers was adorable. And Dr. Abrams was Dr. Tigger. 
And Dr. Abrams said, ah, at 24 weeks, he said two to four weeks. So, like, the far estimate was going to be Patrick's age. The close estimate was, like, 26 weeks. <laughs> but, as we found out, the next time we saw him, every week that nothing had changed, that two to four weeks scooted out. So it wasn't like, best case scenario, nothing goes wrong until 28 weeks. It was, okay, from where you are now, we've got two to four weeks. And the next week, okay, still nothing bad. Um, Dr. Eeyore would contemplate admitting me every time he saw me. Which, about December, I was seeing one each week. I would see my OB and one neonatologist every week. And that was the only thing I was supposed to be leaving bed for. And I would go to see Dr. Eeyore, who would sigh and just drum her fingers and look at the screen and go, I just don't like this. And she would contemplate admitting me. And let's see now, starting in January, I was seeing both neonatologists every week. I would see one in the beginning of the week and one towards the end of the week. And every time it was a Dr. Eeyore appointment, my mom would come <laughs> because we didn't know if I was going home. <laughs> <laughs> because, of course, Brian couldn't, you know take off work twice a week week after week um dr eeyore did admit me um the week before christmas that year because my blood pressure was unusually up and it just eh, wasn't going down so she wanted 24 hours of observation and then they wanted another uh, another 12, I think. Another 12 to 24 of me moving around as much as I did at home. So, like, getting up to go to the bathroom, you know, move to the couch a couple times a day, that kind of thing. They got me home in time for Christmas. I think I came home, like, the 23rd. But it was after that that any time I had a Dr. Eeyore appointment, my mom would come because there was no guarantee I was going home. And I figured out in December or perhaps into January that the difference was Dr. Tigger, total optimist. Dr. Eeyore, total pessimist. One appointment, Dr. Tigger said that you know, this this just looked so great, and he could see where she was compensating for stuff in her brain by, like, widening the arteries and stuff to increase blood flow, and this is really great. The very next visit, Dr. Eeyore looked at it and said, ah, still seeing reduced blood flow in the brain. And I go, you're seeing redu re reduced blood flow where? 
And then I remembered what Dr. Abrams said about her widening the veins and arteries in her brain to compensate. Well, that's what she was compensating for. And that's how the optimist saw it was, here's how she's compensating for that. Whereas the pessimist saw this problem is still happening. And after that, it made a little more sense that their their predictions were so vastly different. Until then, we were joking that they didn't inhabit the same universe. Because <laughs> you, you never saw them at the same time. So we had no proof that they could coexist in the same room. <laughs> so we were kind of picturing that, you know, if they had to pass each other in the hallway, maybe the walls would bend and lights would flicker and stuff. But, but yeah, that's, that is the difference between an optimist and a pessimist, is that the pessimist will go, ah, we still have reduced blood flow in the brain, and the optimist goes, hey, she's compensating for the reduced blood flow in her brain. <laughs> so there you go. There's the optimist and the pessimist in a nutshell. Yeah. Yeah. And... At some point in December, I was stupid, slipped on a wet spot in our bathroom. Our bathroom has ridiculous tile that's basically iced if it gets wet, especially if you're barefoot. Yeah. It's, it's a really bad choice for bathroom tile. And I slipped and fell. And messed up something in my back trying to catch myself. And of course, I'm looking for pain in my ribs. Because that's what happened with Patrick, was that when I felt wasn't stomach pain, it was pain in the area of my liver and around my ribs. So, I was trying really hard not to mess up my back any further and through January I would get up first thing in the morning and I would shake all the way to the bathroom and I would take my Tylenol which was the only thing I could take and go back to bed and just lay there and shake until the pain got tolerable but because the pain would get better I, I thought, it, it can't be my liver, because nothing made it better with Patrick. And finally, let's see now, January, January 23rd, because she was born the same day I went to the doctor. I went in and said, look, I haven't wanted to bring this up, but that fall that I had in December, my back still hurts, and... I just can't tell the difference. I can't tell if it's the pain I'm supposed to be paying attention to or if it's that I've still messed up my ribs. And the nurse looked at my chart and said, you know what? You're due for another CBC anyway. Complete blood count. Mm -hmm. Their favorite thing to do on me. And so let's go do your health panel again. And I did that. And then I, I forgot to take my cell phone off silent. 
So about mid-afternoon, Brian called me. And I somehow got me. I don't know. I was looking at my cell phone at the right time or something. Because I wasn't answer. I wasn't getting up to answer the ho- the house phone. Mm-hmm. And he said, "You need to call the nurse back because the nurse is calling every number she can find for you." <laughs> and they called the call center to get me on the phone to tell me that you need to get back to the hospital. Oh goodness! So. I called the nurse, and she said, okay, now, this isn't an emergency, but this baby is being born, and we have an OR booked for 6 p.m. tonight. You need to come back here as soon as possible. Oh, goodness. So, he told his manager that, um, yeah, I, I needed a ride to the hospital right now, and... The manager was very, very good and let him go. And she was born that night. And it was not an emergency. I was not to worry, but this baby was being born now. (laughs) They had the OR. This is happening. This is happening now. It is time. (laughs) And for her, I was supposed to be awake. Because there are all kinds of health reasons why it's better for the mom to be conscious during a C-section. Yeah. Which I didn't know at the time, but my regular OB explained it to me. You know, if the if mom is conscious, then as soon as the, um, like, as soon as the cord's cut, all of those veins and everything start, like, pulsing. And flexing, and the uterus starts stopping the bleeding on its own. So I could, I went, okay, that's really cool. And I've always thought that it would be cool to see a C-section. Although, of course, you know, they won't let you do that. But, you know, that would be really cool to be awake for. No, it was not cool to be awake for. I was very not cool with this. I became extremely not cool with it. Like, as soon as they wheeled me into the operating room, nope, no longer cool with this. You're going to need to put me out. And they had a nurse who was shaped kind of like a refrigerator, (laughs) whose job, I referred to her afterwards as the bouncer nurse, was keep this mom from flipping out or messing anything up. Because this is happening. (laughs) So she would just hold me how they needed me. To, you know, do the episiot the, not episiotomy, the. C-section. The needle in the back thing. Oh, oh, epidural. Epidural, yes, that. All of that stuff, and getting me hooked up to stuff. And she was trying to get me to, you know, like, relax and talk about stuff. And so I would be saying, what is she doing now? What is she doing now? And the nurse would say, oh, she's just, you know, cleaning the site on your back, making sure she's got the right vertebrae and everything. So do you have other kids? Uh, yeah, I, I have a son. What is she doing now? She's just getting the needle ready. 
<laughs> and I started saying things like, this is not happening. This is not going to work. You need to put me out. This isn't happening. This is not going to happen. And she went, yes, this is going to happen. This is happening. We're doing this and this will work. And we're not putting you out. And we already talked about this. <laughs> oh, goodness. And, and I remember reading that, you know, when there's a point in labor sometimes when mom decides, nope, we're not doing this. And the nurse just has to tell her sternly that, yes, we are. And you're going to push now because this baby is being born. And that was kind of <laughs> this nurse's job. <laughs> was explained to me again and again like a very stubborn child this is what's happening and we've already talked about this yeah that's kind of like the uh talk yeah, that my midwife happening. had with me like yeah it's really intense isn't it because i was like this hurts so bad like yes. i don't know yes it's really but intense. you don't have a choice well, and I was researched enough to know this baby was being born with my will, with my consent yes. or against it. With because, or without you. Well, this was happening with or without you. <laughs> there, There is a fetal ejection reflex. So if you're either really, really calm or really, really stressed out, it's, it's either ends of that spectrum, but it's not like in the middle. Your body will flood you with adrenaline and your body will just eject the baby. Yeah. It's and, time. We're getting this out. Yep. And you With have... without your cooperation. But yeah, no, it's... it's com If you have a fetal ejection reflex, it is completely involuntary. It's kind of like sneezing. <laughs> like I said last week, it is kind of like sneezing. You have <laughs> no say... And that's basically how Xandria was born. That's so funny. Like... I still think that's so funny. Yeah. It's like sneezing. Through your vagina. Yes. You are sneezing <laughs> the baby out of your vagina. <laughs> your body's like, I am done with this. Out it goes. Yes. And you just so yeah, it's it's a it's a similar thing. You were kinda you obviously you weren't going through that because you weren't yeah. in labor because your body's like happening. No, your body's like this is too I was soon. quite determined this was not happening. No, yeah. we're not doing this. Yes, we are doing this, and we've already talked about this. This is happening. We've talked about how. <laughs> and just so you know, because no it's really interesting, um, there are, it depends on the hospital and your OB, but they do offer clear curtains so that you can actually watch the C-section. Yeah, I thought that would be a great idea until I decided that being awake, period, was a horrible idea. Yeah, see. Yeah. The epidural scares me more than cutting me open. Cutting me open scares yeah, I, me very badly. I don't badly. know what my problem was, but this was not happening. Yeah. Yeah. You needed better drugs. <laughs> Well, and, and the nurse said that, you know, as soon as the cord was cut, she could give me something. Well, whatever she gave me, I fell asleep. Yeah. Right away. Beatrix, in contrast to very quiet little Patrick, well, except when Patrick was 
enraged at the existence of the world and steroids both. Beatrix was the spitfire of nursery seed. When I met her, they informed me that she had a personality. She had opinions. <laughs> a nurse that I had never seen having Beatrix once walked through the nursery and said of B, who was announcing that it really needed to be lunchtime, <sighs> yep, she's yelling for her steak and potatoes again. <laughs> and walked on past. And it's like, oh, you have a reputation. <laughs> <laughs> she got her IV out of at least one hand and foot. I don't remember. But they had put it in her head, finally. Because oh, no. I guess the veins of the scalp are really visible. So that's an option if the baby is not cooperating with the concept of an IV. And they were talking about taking it out later that day because she was she was getting big enough for a feeding tube. She was big enough for a feeding tube. She was like on the very low side. Mm -hmm. And I had started having I had started having enough milk that they could um that they could they could count on there being more. I wasn't gonna run out. So they were talking about taking it out later that day and we came in first thing in the morning and it was gone and i asked the nurse because i couldn't imagine that the doctor had given the order to remove it at like five o'clock in the morning i asked her did that come out because of someone else's order or was that her idea <laughs> and the nurse besides said well you know how she is she got it out, and we decided not to put it back in. Oh, goodness gracious. <laughs> and I informed her that she better be really, really good with her feeding tube, because she still had another hand and another foot, and we could do this again, young lady. <laughs> and fortunately, we didn't have to. <laughs> I was just picturing her grabbing it and yanking, right. and apparently it was a little less dramatic than that, but yeah, she she decided she didn't approve of it being up there either. Yeah. So she got it out. You that, know how she is. Oh, I do. That's part of the reason yeah. why they recommend giving them octopuses in the NICU because it they'll play with those and it'll keep them from ripping their cords out. Because yes. they play because with it. Because otherwise they rip their cords out. Yeah, because otherwise they rip their cords out. Because they play with it like it's um, their umbilical cord. That's what it feels like. Yeah, yeah. Patrick would do that with his with his uh, feeding tube. Yeah. And at least that way they're not playing with cords. It depends on the hospital whether they'll let you do it or not. But we did a our our barony for the SCA did a massive octopus octopo the octopodes donation <laughs> to the NICU where one of our members had a baby. Yay. Because she had a preemie too. I don't remember if he was a micro preemie or not. I don't remember. But we filled yeah, all of the beds. Keep them off their cords are good. Yeah. Especially if they don't approve of them. Mm-hmm. It so. was also funny whenever B got handed over to another set of medical students. 
because St. John's had a new crop of um, medical students every week in and out. And the leaving ones would introduce the babies to the ones who were coming in. Mm -hmm. And every time they went by Beatrix, they would explain that she was actually far older than she looked because she lost for like five days before she started gaining. So she went down from, let's see now, she was 215. She went down to 211, I think. But then when they start, when they started adding, um, some sort of, reinforcing high high nutrient powder into her um into her milk she would gain two ounces a night she went from 211 to 213 to 215 to 31 one night after another wow so they they would always explain to the incoming students that this baby was far older than she looked and had her opinions, and that she was named by her four-year-old brother for Beatrix Potter. I and I thought name. it was adorable that they they mentioned that every time. I also managed not to find out that she had a big heart murmur until, oh, two or three weeks, I think, because the the physicians would also the neonatologists would also rotate. And so the students every couple weeks would be introducing the baby to a new doctor. And I managed to be there at rounds pretty much every time. And the new doctor asked um, when her last apnea was. <laughs> and, and I hadn't known of her having any but patrick had them all the time you know they to me weren't that big a deal babies do that and the student flipped through her chart and said uh never <laughs> and that was a surprise and then he said something about the cardiologist having been up to check out her vsd and i jumped in and said i didn't realize she had a cardiologist. Why is that? And the doctor said, oh, they didn't tell you she has a heart murmur? And I said, no, no one's actually mentioned that. <laughs> and he said, oh, yes, it's very impressive. <laughs> That's just what you want to hear. Oh, yes, it's very impressive. <laughs> Which, I, fortunately, it was me. I thought it was hilarious. That, oh, surprise, yes, she has a little hole where there isn't supposed to be one, and it's impressive. <laughs> she was also the washing machine. They had three babies in a row who were all classic examples of whatever their particular heart problem was. And there was one that sounded like a clock. Um, there was one that had a really good heartbeat that was also really loud. And so if you want to know exactly what a baby's heartbeat should sound like, you listen to this baby. And then this baby's the clock, and it had some other problem. And this one's the washing machine. B was the washing machine. 
Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever her murmur was, sounded like a washing machine, and hers was nice and loud and a really good example. And I told her she was a really good example. (laughs) And I'm sure she appreciated that. I'm sure. She was fun. (laughs) So, if any moms had H-E-L-L-P, which you had, what would you say to make them not so scared, I suppose? Um, to be honest, it would be, it would depend on when the doctor starts talking about it. Because apparently now, it probably makes a difference if they're looking for it. And mm. in B's case, they were looking for it because of Patrick. And so they could see it coming for miles off with her. Yeah. Um, Also, according to one of the labor and delivery triage nurses, I got to know them very well because B would be active, 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 and then sleep for a day, (laughs) which I suppose normal babies might get to do. I kept telling her this was not an option for her, but she would decide to sleep for a day. And so I would have to go into triage. And when they cranked up the heart monitor, she would get going again. That was also how we found out that she liked drums. (laughs) If I had to get her moving, I would play Ramones and the W's and other bands that had drums and horns and loud stuff. Loud, rhythmic stuff would get her moving Mm -hmm. so that I wouldn't have to go back to L&D triage and check in again with the front desk people who knew me on site and go up and get all hooked up just for her to then decide, oh, I'm going to be active now because I have cool stuff to listen to. (laughs) One of the nurses said "That's, that's one of the reasons they crank up the heart monitor is that frequently... The baby will get moving after they hear it. For whatever reason. Babies do that. But one nurse was talking to me, I think about 1 o'clock in the morning, probably, while I was getting ready to check out. She said she had been reading about the most recent research on health syndrome, which I hadn't even realized there was very much. Because part of the problem is, as soon as you see it, you have to solve it. And to solve it, you deliver the baby. And when you deliver the baby, it resolves. Mm -hmm. So it's really hard to study something that you don't know it until it happens. And then you have to fix it. And then you can't study it because it's done. But somehow, they had figured out that it seemed like it started from implantation. Mm. Like the the egg settles in but not quite far enough. So these hormones are supposed to be released so that all of the, the muscles around the uterus get soft and springy like telephone cords so that they'll expand. Mm-hmm. Except it's not quite enough of that hormone. And 
so it won't do quite what it's supposed to. And it's just one little thing after another. It's like that story about the guy whose horse loses a nail and eventually loses a shoe. And all I remember of the poem is, and all for the want of a horseshoe nail. This one little thing goes wrong, and everything that goes wrong afterwards is linked to the previous thing that, that went wrong. Yep, I know that one. So if they're looking for it, they can find it earlier. Anecdotally, bed rest makes a difference. I don't know that there's studies enough to say definitively that it makes a difference. Um, after Patrick was born, I read that magnesium's not a help syndrome treatment. It's known anecdotally to reduce the risk of seizures, which you're at a risk for if you have it. So it was like, it was their best guess at the time in, in 2006, you know, it was like one of the, one of the rare, one of the few things that they could do was, well, we can start magnesium and it'll reduce the, the risk of the mom having seizures. Yeah. But other than that, there's really just not much. Um, what I would, what I found comforting with Patrick was that every 24 hours you're still pregnant, the baby's chances of a good outcome are going up. Every day that you're still pregnant is a good day. Um, with B, they said any growth still counts as growth. Like one week, I think her growth was like a tenth of an ounce. And I was thinking, oh, my gosh, she's going to be born next week. But no, Dr. Tigger said, well, that still counts as growth. Any growth counts as growth. And that's a good thing. Because your body will go to great lengths to try and make sure that the baby's getting what it needs. And the baby can compensate for some of what it's missing like be with the the blood vessels in her brain you know her body could do that so i guess the comforting thing would be that your body will make sure the the baby gets what they need first um my oxygen levels were really low anytime i got up and moved around i would walk from the doctor's office back to my car and then sit and gasp for like five minutes before I could call anyone with an update because I was, I was breathing too much to talk. And I mentioned that to Dr. Tigger and he ran a pulse ox on me laying down, which is how I spent most of the day. And he said, well, as long as you're laying down, you have enough oxygen. And when you're up and moving and you're gasping for breath, the baby's getting enough oxygen because your body will make sure 
and the baby will make sure that they're getting what they need first. And I really appreciated doing that. I always found because, that to be comforting. Yeah. And the the percentage of a good outcome is getting bigger all the time for younger and younger ages. Like, there's a baby that a friend of mine from college had at 25 weeks, I think, who is doing great. And when I was pregnant with Patrick, 25 was, uh, that's really not good. Um, 28 then was the threshold of, yeah, you should be really good from here. And now the you should be really good from here is like 26. So things are getting better all the time. As far as baby survival and outcomes and what they can do for micropremies. Yeah, I always found that to be really comforting when you told me that and I was pregnant. Because it gave me a benchmark to know even if the worst things happen, it will probably be okay. Yeah, and that's that's one thing I try not to say to moms who are, you know, just normally pregnant. I try not to burst out with, oh, 28 weeks. If he was born tomorrow, you should probably be, be fine. <laughs> <laughs> because... I would assume most moms don't really want to hear that. I but can't remember. But it came in handy once. Yeah. I can't um, remember the context in which you told me that, but I was pregnant at the time, and, like, it really helped. Yeah, it, it needs context. Yeah. If the mom is concerned at all, that's when you very cheerfully tell her that this really isn't that big a deal. Yeah. But, like, a regular pregnancy, you probably don't want to start with, well, if the baby was born tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, we were, I think but, we were just talking and you were like, you know, babies are viable outside of the womb at 26 weeks. And I was like, that's amazing. Yeah. Oh, they can transfer preemies between hospitals via helicopter. They have. Um, basically the really big, really big, complicated incubators that have all the monitors and everything, they have versions of those that are mobile. Because we went to see Patrick once after a baby had been transferred by helicopter, and there was this big plastic box on, like, a stretcher in the hallway that had all of the monitors and multiple IV poles and stuff all attached to the box. So it was like all self-contained. That's so cool. So you could put the, you know, 24-weeker born in Jacksonville or wherever in the helicopter with everything and take them to St. John's with everything. I thought that was just the coolest thing to that see. That is so cool. I had a friend that actually, she's, she turned out to be a really, really good friend now. But I just met her 
randomly in an in anxiety support group on Facebook. <laughs> and she was 15 weeks and had just had about a preterm labor. Oh, no. And naturally was freaking out. And I messaged her and we started messaging and all of the OBs available to her really suck. Like, impressively. Because she would tell me what was going on and I would think, okay, if I went to into St. John's with this, what would they do? <laughs> and the answer was never tell me I'm a nervous first-time mom and send me home. <laughs> oh, God. That was never the answer. She was having stuff like cramps, headaches, um, random preterm labor, like Braxton Hicks, but really fast and close together for a little bit. And then it would quit. And just all this weirdness. Her blood pressure would be really high. Her blood pressure would be really low. I came up with a list for her at one point because she had gotten a referral finally to a high-risk OB because I've been telling her all this time <laughs> we choked that I was her OB <laughs> with no <laughs> medical training in Illinois. She's in California. Oh, uh, yeah. Because I was telling her what to do and what to tell the OB and then agreeing with her that the OB was an idiot. Um, I don't remember. I think it was the third one. She went through five, oh, all of whom were useless. Must be something to do with, with California Medicaid doctors, but they were all varying levels of useless. And there was one who sent her home with goofy blood pressure problems, serious Braxton Hicks, and, like, weird backaches anytime she got up. When she went to this guy, I gave her a list of everything they're going to want to do. They might want to do a 24-hour monitoring. They're definitely going to want to draw a lot of blood. You know, pack stuff for the kid you've got, and you're probably going to stay overnight. And if you don't have a choice for the kid, just tell the nurses you don't have a choice. She needs to stay because they're probably going to want to monitor you over the night. Overnight, they're want to. They're going to want twenty four hours observation and a complete blood count and you know, what the belt fetal monitors are like, and everything I could think of. And then she left the doctor and called me in angry tears because he had said she was a nervous first-time mom and that this was normal. <laughs> and, and at that point, it was just like, Okay, every day that you're pregnant is a good day, and you're just going to go on bed rest because your doctors are entirely useless. 
Yeah. That doesn't sound so, anything like normal. Yeah, it was it was actually useful having been through both pregnancies because I think I've done every test you can do. I've done the fetal activity test. I've had many complete blood counts run. I've had the 24 hours monitoring and the automated blood pressure test and all this stuff. And every time she would tell me what was going on, my, my, my touchstone was if I went to my OB and told him this was happening, what would happen? And the answer was never, you're perfectly fine, go home. Yeah. So, you know, it was like, we started feeling insane at some point. Because I, it, I mean, the gaslighting thing, that's, that's basically what it was. Was doctor after doctor going, oh, it's fine. You're fine. You're just looking for a problem because you're nervous. And I'm going, okay, if I went in with this, yeah, they would be drawing a lot of blood. They would probably want to monitor for me for a while. There's no way I would be going home. I'm not losing my mind. It really is that OB number three is still an idiot. Yeah. But yes, any day that you're pregnant is a good day. And with that, I am Ray. I am Cecily. And this is the 80s Mom Podcast. We hope you all have a wonderful week. And good night. Thank you.